This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Striving for Happiness, recorded June 26, 2011, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. That little bow at the end, among other things, is a way of honoring all of those monks and nuns and seekers and masters over the eons that have brought these meditative practices and this contemplative mystical path to us. And without them, it would be much more difficult for us to be in contact with these teachings which, as we discover through practicing them, are very precious. I wanted to talk a little bit about happiness and our striving to attain it. And I have a quote from a Christian mystic by the name of Simone Weil from the last century. And in this quote, she sums up the essence of suffering in this world. And she points out the function of spiritual practice and the path, path to truth. She says, We live in a world of unreality and dreams. To give up our imaginary position as the center, to renounce it, not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of our soul, that means to awaken, awaken to what is real and eternal, to see the true light and to hear the true silence. This little quote is packed with truth. That she is summing up, really, the whole path in this little passage. First of all, we live in a world of unreality and dreams. We are living in a dream. Every dream image is impermanent. It's passing. We look around at the world, and it looks solid to us. This is the way the dream works. Whenever you have a dream, if you are in the dream and looking around, it's real to you. This is why nightmares are so real. We believe them. But when we awaken from the nightmare, it's just a dream. (coughs) 
So then in her quote, she gives us the remedy to suffering. She says to be free, we need to give up our imaginary position as the center. To renounce it, not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of our soul. So not just as an idea, we have to get it deeply. We have to see that it is really a dream beyond ideas about that. And with this, we may then awaken to what is real and eternal, to see the true light and to hear the true silence. So let's start with this first part and talk about it a little bit more, this business of living in an imaginary world. We look around at the world, but it looks solid to us. But we, we have this sense of something that's missing. And so we begin to strive. We strive to be happy. All we want is to awaken from the dream of separateness. That's what we want. In our delusion, we strive for attainments of all kinds. This happiness that we are striving for is our awake state when we're not dreaming. This is the happiness we know is there. We recognize it is there. And our delusion is that we think we know how to achieve it. And so we strive for it. We strive for worldly things over and over. The junkie, the hedge fund manager, they have the same aspiration. They want to be happy. Both feel that it's going to be the next transaction, the next hit, that's going to bring true abiding happiness. But it never comes. But we do get a glimpse of happiness in attainments of all kinds. For a moment, we're not striving for anything. For a moment, we're not wanting anything. And in that moment, we are waking from the dream. The dream is falling away. And we're able to glimpse the reality, which is happy, which is free. But almost immediately, we begin to struggle once again. We are all junkies. We are all striving for happiness. We seek to feel better all the time. And we do whatever we can do within certain bounds to achieve that. This happiness that we're striving for is already here. And every movement that we make to attain it obstructs it, hides it. This is a spiritual problem, not a material problem. Whatever crude desire we may have at the core, it is a spiritual longing. It is a longing coming from outside of the dream, from something we know. Because our awake state 
is our true nature, our true reality, our true identity. But because we believe that all of this stuff is real, we strive within the dream. We strive to find this mysterious happiness through worldly attainments. We strive for impermanent objects, impermanent situations, impermanent feelings, mind states. But ultimately, none of them can satisfy for the reason that we've mentioned already. They are all impermanent. They are passing. We can't see that. We ignore that. Now, there's a reason that we continue to strive. We can't help it. We can't stop. It is conditioned to be there. And it is co-opting our identity for that reason. We identify with it because it appears to be me. It is conditioned. And so to try to stop is absurd. If you try to stop, you're still striving. You're striving to stop striving. You can't escape it. So what do we do? We strive. And we strive well. The Sufi poet Rumi tells us this. He says, in whatever state you may be, seek. Seek water constantly, O man of dry lips. For your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find a fountain. The lips' dryness is a message from the water. It's a message from the water. Rumi is speaking from outside of the dream. He's speaking to the dreamer. Continue, struggle, seek. Reminding that this longing for happiness is real. Don't stop seeking for it. And the way to seek is not to go blindly into it, but to look and discern nakedly to really see what it is that we're attaining, not to get stuck in anything false, not to get stuck in fascination with beliefs and stories. The seeking is not really to find happiness at all, but it, it is to discern what keeps us dreaming. What is it that we do moment to moment to make ourselves dream? What is it that eludes us, that hides our, our own enlightenment in every moment? It is happening right now. Now because we know who we are, we are identified with images of self. They're very real to us. But if we are to find true abiding happiness, we've got to begin to question this identity. We call this a practice of inquiry. 
inquiring into who we really are. We have all these stories and beliefs. Are they really who we are? But before we can inquire properly, we need to be motivated. We have to want to see. Well, sometimes this takes a while in our lives because when we first start out, when we're young, a lot of times we believe we're going to get happiness. We're going to have it. It's going to work. And we do get happiness. We have all kinds of wonderful experiences. We cling to them. But we notice they dissolve away. They don't last. They can't last. But until we really start to see that, we keep grasping for them. We keep struggling to hold them, to have them. Expectation and grief go hand in hand. They are really the same thing. So in order to recognize what is going on, sometimes we just have to develop a motivation. And sometimes it takes time. So eventually, though, we come to see. Most of us see it, even without meditation. We just start to see there's a sense of futility here. And we never get what we think we want. We get it for a while, and then it passes. It slips through our fingers. So the other thing we need besides motivation is we need a stable attention. And the stable attention actually comes out of the motivation. Because if we are really shocked by what we see and we are really motivated, we start really looking. We start really paying attention to our life. Sometimes people just go out and and commit suicide because it gets that dark. But that's so unnecessary because this happiness that we see, it's, it's always here. It's always present. So once we begin to look, it's very helpful if we stumble onto meditation practices. If we stumble onto a little group like this one and many, many groups like this, Zen groups, Christian mystical groups, they're all over. And we can find something that helps, shows us how to meditate, how to settle our mind, how to develop a stability of mind. And this helps us tremendously. Now when we dream in our, in our world of day-to-day life, dreaming, Our attention is fragmented. It is bouncing around. We identify with thoughts, and thoughts are ephemeral. But the thoughts carry us to other thoughts, and then to other thoughts. And associated with them are all of these emotions. And so we just kind of bounce around. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I like that. I'm going that way. I'm going to get away from that. And we just constantly are doing this. And we are identified with this process. So, in a meditation practice, we train our attention to be stable. And one way to do this is that little practice that we did earlier, settling our attention on our breathing. 
on the sensations, the momentary, moment, moment sensations of breathing. By, by stabilizing our attention, all we're really trying to do is to examine our experiences of the dream in a way that doesn't just suck us back into it. We want to see the dream as it actually is. So we want to see it more clearly. As we rest with the breath, for example, we discover that it's not really a breath at all. All our life we call it a breath. We think of it as a breath. But when we go to find where is this breath, we find these little sensations and they're arising and passing away moment by moment. Now that might sound silly to someone who has not been meditating much. But after you've been meditating for a while, you discover that this is true. You always thought it was something, but it's not a thing. It's something that is constantly shifting and changing. And to call it a breath just sort of puts it all under one umbrella. All these sensations. We don't know what these things are. We really have no idea. But we put this umbrella on it, and we call it the breath. Or sensation. We don't know what it is that we're experiencing. And so we use labels. It's very useful to use labels. It's relatively true. It's useful so that we can interact, talk about these things. It's great. It's creativity. But it's not the reality. And this is our problem. We are dreaming that it is. So when we settle our attention down on the breath and those little thoughts start bubbling up, we are noticing something. We are noticing an inherent restlessness in the mind. We are noticing that moment-to-moment striving for happiness right there. Every time a thought arises, it's arising to find something. It wants something more. The reason we train our attention to be stable is so that we can actually see these things more clearly. But that clarity does not come from chasing the thought. It comes from developing this attention, making it more present, more pliable. Then when thoughts arise, we can recognize them nakedly. We can see they are just transients. They are mental phenomena arising. And associated with them come these energetic fields of emotion. But we we can discern that in a moment of stillness. And we're just resting with our breath. We start to glimpse these things. Whenever we sit like this, and we really begin to notice these kinds of things, we are actually awakening from the dream a little bit. We are awakening. We can feel something. We feel this this sense of fullness, this sense of of, uh, ventilation, this sense of warmth, and everything is good. Everything is okay. 
There's no problem. But then, suddenly it's gone. Suddenly it's forgotten. And we're back to struggling. So the, pro- the process with meditation, though, is to glimpse these things. It's not about attainment, though. But we forget. We're doing our practice. We have a great mind state. We have this experience of something wonderful. And then it falls away, and we go, oh, I want that. As soon as that begins, that is thought and emotion moving in, taking over the practice. So at that moment, if we are strong in the practice, we recognize ah, thought, emotion, and we return just to the naked sensations of breathing. So we're back once again. So this is really an interesting process. We just do it. We just continue on doing it, doing the practice, and noticing. Whenever expectation comes up, the expectation is driving us back into the dream. But when we see how we want something, we recognize it is dreaming. We can relax once again. It's just this ongoing process. After a while, we just begin to recognize the mind for what it is. It is the dream state. So what we're recognizing here is that striving is a problem for us. But didn't Rumi say that striving was, we need to strive? Well, the point here is not that striving is a problem. It's the way we use the striving. If we are are blind to it, if we are grasping for something which is impermanent and we're suffering and we're not paying attention, that kind of striving is not serving us. Ultimately, that will take us back to the path because it will become so unbearable and so empty to us that the only option then would be to return back to seeing things in a more naked way once again. This sense of self that we believe ourselves to be is really the linchpin of all of our beliefs. And when we talk about dreaming, what we're really talking about is a set of beliefs. We, we hold the beliefs in such a way they are so real to us that it, it deludes us. And we experience restlessness, this sense of dreaming. All of these beliefs spring from the fear and the hope that is somehow inherent within us. This emotional basis is what keeps us dreaming. In hope and fear, we strive to believe that we are real. So in the dream, we don't want to know that we're dreaming because it undermines our sense of what we think we are. We notice that in our very life. This is going on all the time. We want to affirm ourselves through hope. We want to think good things about the future. Something good is coming. I am a wonderful person. We like these wonderful thoughts. That is hope. Fear is anything that is 
on the downside, you know? Someone insults us. Ah! Pierces our heart. It's sad. It's not affirming to the sense of self. Self moves always from what it doesn't like to what it likes. And what it likes is whatever makes it feel more real. But this is a very narrow little game. Joel used to always give this analogy of a rat in a maze. And there's the, there's the channel that says likes and the channels that says don't like. And the rat always goes up the one that says likes. We always go towards what we like. And so we miss everything else. But what we like is just conditioned to be liked. And so with this process of meditation, we are resting our attention in a, a state in which we're not, we're not reinforcing the sense of self at all. We're just sitting there. We're just sitting with sensations. And so the, the, the mind wants thoughts that feel good. And so it keeps creating them, and we keep running back to the breath. After a while, that dichotomy will eventually break down, and we will begin to recognize something about the breath that we never noticed before. It's, it has a certain beauty. There's something magical about everything that we see when we no longer cling to some story about what it is. This is how false knowledge has come to veil our happiness. What is real is never what we define it to be. It is never a definition. We call this a hand. It looks like a hand. Can we deny that it's a hand? It's a hand, right? But you see, this is just a belief. Do we actually know what this is? We have a story. We have a template. We lay it over the world. That template is our beliefs. Is this a hand? We start to question that. Oh, oh, I see. There's something there. But I have a name for it. I have a perception for it. I have a whole lot of stories about it. But all of that is extra. What is this? Do we know? No, we don't. We don't know what this is. If we believe this is a hand, and we live in that belief, we will never know what it actually is. If we don't question it, we don't know what it is, therefore we give it a name so that we can have this relative world, which is perfect, beautiful, no problem. Again, it's just the belief that this is a hand that is the problem. Do you see that? Okay, so look around the room. 
We think we know what all of this is. Do we? No. We have a story about it. We have a belief about it. Shankara, a great Hindu mystic from long ago, tells us, no matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he is really seeing Brahman, and nothing else but Brahman. He sees mother of pearl and imagines that it is silver. He sees Brahman and imagines that it is the universe. But this universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. Nothing but a name. So the name becomes the veil to seeing what is actually here. We see Brahman and imagine that it's a hand. It is in this sense that the Gospel of Thomas tells us in Jesus' treatise, he says, the kingdom of heaven is laid upon the earth, but men do not see it. So if we want to awaken from our dream, we must question our beliefs. We must come to recognize we live in a world of unreality and dreams, as Simone tells us. We need to give up our imaginary position at the center. How do we do this? By discernment. We have to see what we truly are. We must question more deeply to see what we are not. Whatever we think we are, we need to question that so that we can see deeply into it. And if it isn't us, we want to know that. As Simone tells us. She says, not just intellectually, but in the imaginative part of our soul, in our hearts, we want to see. In our guts, we want to know this. We inquire... We inquire as to what all this is. And in so doing, we dissect this story of I. Whatever we think we are is an imposter. And we begin to discover that firsthand. Each time we see what we are not, usually there's another one. There's a more subtle version. We are like an onion. We just keep removing layers and layers and layers. It gets more and more subtle as we look, as we look. We're waking from the dream. The the thinner this gets, the smaller it gets. And then we come to the bottom. And what's there? Just nothing. It appears to be nothing to the mind. But it is Brahman. we continue to ask the question, who am I really? Until we come to the fact that there is no question more to be asked. The seeking stops. There is no self at this point. No longer trapped in a self, in this dream of self. 
and we are now right to awaken. Awakening happens with an act of grace. But we are ready, once, once we relinquish in this way and no longer are clinging to the story of I, we, we can awaken. This is the time and the only time that awakening can take place. It's when we are no longer spinning the web, seeking, striving, struggling for happiness. And it is in this way, as Simone tells us, that we can see the true light and hear the true silence. So that's all I have for you. Take just a moment and just rest your attention into your breathing once again. Just sitting there just as you are. Just let your attention rest. Feel what is here. Thoughts arise telling you all kinds of stories. Let them go. Just feel the naked reality which has no name. No future. No story. Just now. Just this. Comments? Yes, Annie. I have a comment on the story that Michael told you might have to help with some details. When you're talking about the hand, you know, do you really know what this is in name? It's a woman who was born blind. Some other people may have heard the story. And I don't know, do you remember how old she was when they she got they gave her sight? It was horrible. She couldn't make sense of anything. She got she, her sight back. She got her sight back. It's like so she had never seen before. Oh, yeah. So she didn't know this was a hand. Oh. It was like, what is that? Yeah, uh -huh. that from, I don't know. Around my head, but I think it has something to do with this. Is not that it's a name. Yeah. She wasn't conditioned. She didn't have that conditioning to look at this and say it's a hand or whatever. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. So it gives me a little little bead on how to think of that. You know, you can do this in your all day long. You can just notice how we have a story, a perception of everything. It's, it's like if you, know, you look at something, it tells you what it is. 
but it doesn't really. It's like we are superimposing that, and if the more you see it, and the more you practice looking in that way, at some point you'll just notice that you'll look at something, and it's it's not a thing. It has no name. You know that. It's like it's it comes. You recognize it deeply, and then you see the name go on to it, and you see that that you can actually recognize this nakedness, this suchness, all the time. Even though the thoughts are there, even though the designations are there, you can be recognizing this all the time. And then uh, one other thing, I think this is related. Um, some point recently, um, in, during meditation, I start, and I think it happened at the retreat, I started to, because I'm kind of out of corner of my seat with hands, and I could feel that they were on my, I could have the feeling on my knees, but somehow they weren't my hands. And it was just weird. And then I was reading Douglas Hardy, and he said something funny like, you know how when you have an out-of-body experience, or they describe that, they're looking down at their body. And I'm like, well, that's, that's what it feels like, that I'm yes. looking down at these weird hands that aren't mine, and I can feel them. So I don't know if it's... But it's a little detachment thing or something. That oh, well, that's just it. You see, the, the only reason that we cling to our stories is because they're our story. And when we see when we are totally dissociated like that, even for a moment, there's, there's room for great wisdom to pop up and insights to take place. That's wonderful. But of course I want to grab it. Also, yeah, of course. Let's do it again. But of course, but you can recognize that yeah. impulse to grab it, you see? Yeah, and by recognizing true. that, you see, oh, there it is again. Yeah. Uh, I was reading a book uh, about Gurdjieff. He's a, he was a Gurdjieff. Russian philosopher back in the late 1800s. Uh, introduced him by Mark. It was very interesting. He uh, he studied all around the world, India, China, all the mystical places, uh, Jerusalem, and sort of thing. And he came to the conclusion, um, being well, I. Uh, that we we are we are meant to have pain, and I was thinking about that, and thinking when we're children, we 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 know now. And you talk about, you know, we are pure consciousness. And as a child growing up, without the ability, brain-wise, as it develops through time, to to know something invisible that we can't describe even as, ever, we can't describe consciousness except we kind of know we have it, or and. Um, and I was also thinking that that probably was very, I didn't, the way he stated it, I didn't like it because I thought, God, we're, you know, but in a way, motivation is, I mean, pain is what leads us to motivation to find the truth. Isn't it more or less? Well, it I mean, certainly can be, unless yes. Unless someone's kind of on their way some other lives that are close to... Suffering life. is really what brings us to truth. Well, suffering and pain, I'm talking about yeah, the same thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, sure. They said it like that, it just sort of threw me like a slap in the face. We're meant to have pen. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, it's true that we always try to avoid it. I mean, we're meant to have it. If you read any of the biographies of mystics that have awakened, they're full of suffering. These people have been through so much suffering. Many of them. Now, Joel, it's not as apparent, although he did spend a lot of time, or a significant amount of time, in Vietnam. And you know that was painful, and then he had a, a love affair that fell apart, and eh, that's that can be really painful. When these things happen, they are moments in which we can we can benefit because they 
They rob us of our stories. They, 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 they tear our world down. And during that period in which our world is torn down, we can begin to glimpse other things. And if we take up a spiritual practice at the same time, it can be very powerful. Right in the midst of suffering, we have the opportunity. And we can't get away from it. If it's something dreadful, if we've lost a loved one, then, then we're, you know, no matter where we go, we see our loved one. And that pain that we experience, it's like a meditation that's taking place all the time. We can't escape our meditation object. And so in that sense, it's powerful. And the other part of it that's powerful is that the emotions are so strong there that when we are able to see deeply, that that energetic, um, that emotional sense moves into our, our awareness itself. Our attention grows, becomes strong. It's like that, that energy of the, of the sorrow becomes the awareness itself through one-pointed attention. Yes, when uh, Ramana spoke about he, his awakening was through feet, I wonder if uh, you just spoke now of uh, suffering and you know how this uh, enhances one uh, attention, if you will, awareness. Yeah. So would we say that Ramana basically because he was to be with that fear, if you will, that his attention or awareness got so clear that he was able to see he was In Tibetan Buddhism, as you know, but uh, for the sake of others here, in Tibetan Buddhism they have a whole, a whole repertoire of practices around afflictive emotions, and fear is one of them. And what they teach is that all of these emotions can be transformed through guided observation, can be transformed into their enlightened uh, component, their, their, what they really are when we're not deluded. And in the case of fear, it is clarity. So as long as we have a story and we're running with a story, and we feel fear, and we keep having images of, of what, what it is that we're afraid of. It keeps running and running, and it amps up, and it, and it becomes afflictive. It's, it's miserable. But when we are, have been meditating on the sensation of fear, and we practice it, and we watch it when it comes up in our life, we can begin to notice that fear is a clarity of mind. It actually is a clarity. When the story falls away, there is this very crisp alertness. And the story, how the story goes with Ramana was he came home from school and he suddenly, it occurred to him that he was going to die and he was interested in knowing what that would be like, so he just went through the motions, laid down on the floor, allowed himself to experience dying. And he was, you know, this wasn't just some, some superficial thing. He was terrified. And he allowed that fear to drive him to the truth. 
You know how when you're a little kid, you suddenly you realize that your parent is going to die? Or then you realize, oh, I'm going to die. That's a scary moment for us if we've never thought of it before. It's really scary. That's a great opportunity for wisdom. But usually, we aren't as resourceful as Ramana. You know? And you know, he was gifted in that way. He was ready. Anyone else have any questions or comments? Okay. All right, well, let's uh, bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And if you'd like to stick around, we have tea and some other things back there. So, here we meet again. He's too long. <laughs>